Support for this podcast is brought to you by Goat Rodeo, a creative audio agency in Washington, D.C. Goat Rodeo helps clients and partners create high-quality professional audio content, translating ideas to sound. Find them at GoatRodeoDC.com. For me, dance is a universal movement language. It's movement which conveys the universality of the stories of humanity. From Adesible Media, I'm Megan Rumler, and you're listening to Adesible Voices, a podcast that features intimate conversations with Asian American trailblazers who all have one thing in common, unabashedly pursuing their dreams while transforming the fabric of this nation. From food to business to tech to the arts, this is Asian America, up close and personal. Since the earliest human civilizations, dance has been an essential part of communication, storytelling, and the human journey. From ceremonies, rituals, celebrations, and entertainment, dance is and has always been one of the most powerful forms of human expression. We're honored to welcome our guest, Dana Tysoon Burgess. Dana is a leading American choreographer, dancer, and cultural figure. A Pulitzer Prize-winning dance critic of the Washington Post has referred to Dana as the poet laureate of Washington dance and a national dance treasure. Dana was named the Smithsonian's first-ever choreographer-in-residence at the National Portrait Gallery and is also presently a cultural representative for the U.S. State Department, an appointment he uses to promote international cultural dialogue through the global language of dance. Dana Tysoon Burgess, welcome to A Decibel Voices. Thank you. It's great to be here. Dana, you were born in Carmel, California, and then ultimately you and your family moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Can you tell us a little bit about your parents and how did they come to be in Carmel and, and then how did you end up in New Mexico? Sure. My parents were both visual artists and they met at Cranbrook Arts Academy in the early 1950s. So my mom is still living and she creates artwork every single day, visual art. And uh, my father passed away a few years ago, but was also a very avid and dedicated art maker. I was born in Carmel, California in um, the late 60s. And they were there because it was a beautiful environment. And it was a place where they were making their artwork. And they had friends who lived in Santa Fe in New Mexico, who were from the Crown Brook days. We used to go there in the summers. And finally, they decided that the landscape was so captivating and the artist community there that we ended up moving there when I was a small child. So I really grew up in Santa Fe with all of its rarities and oddities, as I would say. Both your parents uh, come from an artistic background. What was it like growing up in a household like that? You know, not everybody gets a childhood like that. I think there were pros and cons, of course, right? Because Artists can be very obsessive and compulsive when they're in the midst of their art making and their process, and yet also can guide um, a young person to seeing the world in a very different, beautific way. So I think I got both sides of that, seeing that artists can be extremely driven, but can also create a very magical um, perspective that can be shared with audiences. For me, growing up in Santa Fe was fascinating because so much of what resonated from my childhood 
continues to unfold in my adulthood. My parents' community from Cranbrook and the early modernists of America, which were their community, ended up visiting a lot when I was a child. And when I think back on those conversations and who I had access to, it's, it still informs my work to this day. For example, the first time I met Isamu Noguchi, who of course was the great Japanese-American sculptor, um, I remember sitting at the table with him as a child and looking at him and thinking, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing person I've ever met before because he was the first Amerasian or Eurasian man that I met outside of my own family. And How I was old just, were you, Dana? I must have been maybe seven years old. Oh, wow. And, and that stayed with you. I was just thinking about this the other day because he was complaining about this Martha and how she wasn't spending enough time on his sculptures. And he was upset about not getting the, I think it was the Hiroshima Memorial contract, I believe. But in retrospect, as I grew older, I realized Martha was Martha Graham. And that always like, uh, you know, makes me chuckle every once in a while. So I was thinking about that the other day about how much, even back then, I was learning how much experimentation and how much time it takes to collaborate and to especially collaborate with uh, the visual arts. Can you tell me a little bit about your parents' ancestry? Sure. My mom is Korean American and she was born on Oahu on the Del Monte plantation. On my mother's side, my Korean side, they left Korea in 1903 and were indentured workers for the Del Monte Plantation starting in 1903. They are part of the earliest Koreans to move to America. And for generation after generation, including my mom, um, they picked pineapples on that plantation. And back then, the plantation actually built their housing, supplied a schoolhouse, etc. But my mom didn't wear shoes until she was in high school. And that's not that long ago, really, right? So her life was very different, in a sense, than, than what many people know today. And then my father was English, Irish, German, Scotch. He was sort of a Heinz 57, so to speak, mix, <laughs> right? Um, but the fascinating thing about my father was that he spoke so many languages, and I guess including the language of art, too. He was fluent in Mandarin, French, German, English, of course, and conversational in Spanish and, and New Latin as well. He went to Yale and then Cranbrook and was a specialist in Asian studies and also languages. So when did dance enter your life? Did it enter your life as a child or were you a bit older? Originally, I wanted to play the piano because my parents are so visually inclined, as is my brother, in terms of art, and I just am not. And so I was really struggling to look for something that would allow me to express myself. So one day I came home from school and I said to my dad, I've got it, like I, I want to play the piano. And so he just looked at me like, hmm, okay. And so a few days later, he picked me up from school, and I thought we were driving to a piano teacher, but instead he dropped me off at the local martial arts dojo, which was the right decision. Um, he just knew I loved to move so much. And I ended up becoming a competitive martial artist as a child and teenager. I had a wonderful martial arts teacher named Makio Nishida. The dojo was based within 
the Project Tibet building. I would take two karate classes a day, and then in between those classes, I would sit on the porch and talk to the Tibetan monks that were there. So I would learn about their stories about meditation and what Tibet was like, and then you know go into the dojo, meditate, take class, and then eventually go home. That was a very interesting, wonderful, really magical experience to have as a child that taught me so much discipline. And I think that same discipline and movement made complete sense when I transitioned into dance. So in a lot of ways, my early dance training is karate. How did the martial arts experience bridge you to modern dance? I had a friend in high school who was a dancer, and I had mentioned it to my father, and my father once again intervened, and he said, why don't you go and try a dance class with your friend? And so the first class I took uh, was a ballet class, and I just immediately fell in love with it because it had discipline, but then it had artistry and musicality. And so that, for me, was sort of that turning point. It was that aha moment. Do you remember what emotions you were experiencing when you had that aha moment? Was it a physical aha, or was it uh, a really kind of a mental you know, awakening? I would say it was like a physical aha moment because it was another whole layer of, oh my gosh, this is really difficult, but I can do this and I, I want to come back. And so it was that really wanting to come back and not being able to wait to get into another class that I knew something different was going on. So what did you do after being in that ballet class? What happened from there? Did you enroll in another class and another class? Well, I took... Um, several classes at this little studio in in Santa Fe. And then I didn't think about it too much. You know, I was still doing my martial arts. And then I went to college at the University of New Mexico. And originally, I went there thinking, oh my gosh, you know, my parents had such a hard time being artists, and it's such a tumultuous life, and maybe I'll be a CPA. So I went there thinking, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So I I went there thinking, oh, I'm going to go to business school. And um, so I got there, and within the first week, I realized that I was just scrambling all the numbers, you know, learning-wise. I just couldn't do it. And so I just started wandering the campus during the days and just sitting (laughs) by the duck pond and walking around. And I walked past this building, Carlisle Gymnasium, and it had this music just blasting out of it. I just walked into the building and I snuck up into the bleachers and I watched all these dance classes going on. So then I just started sneaking into the dance classes until finally one of the teachers said, oh, you're doing really well in this class, but you can't stay unless you sign up. And that was sort of the, the sign I was looking for, <laughs> that um, I would sign up for these classes, drop all my business classes, and dedicate myself to learning dance at that age. I had read that while you were in graduate school, you founded your dance company. Is that correct? Right. I used the opportunity of graduate school to incubate the idea of a company. And at that time, I was really fascinated in looking at what an Asian American aesthetic within contemporary dance would mean and what it meant around the country. So I brought together a group of friends who were all dancers and really formulated the company at that time as a way for me to create new pieces of choreography to explore identity issues. How did that go for you in the beginning? 
uh, in terms of the pieces that you made and audience audience reaction? I think all the pieces that I made, like most young choreographers, it's they were very personal perspectives um, of looking at the world and also very young and youthful. I had a lot of really wonderful serendipitous things that happened that transformed my career. And when I have young choreographers ask, like, you know, what do I plan? How do I do this? I think about the the biggest moments that impacted my career were all about serendipity, interestingly enough. And it's because I was just focusing on the work. After several performances, you know, one vice president of the Kennedy Center came backstage one time and said, I'm going to get you into the Kennedy Center. And another time, a State Department representative said, I'd like to get you on our roster for um, representing America abroad. So it really was the consistent presentation of the work, which led to these unique moments that really shifted my career in a very positive way. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsors, 8 Media Group, a Washington, D.C. area video production company whose mission is to create, collaborate, and resonate. Find them at 8mediagroup.com. If you're just joining us, we've been talking with artistic director and choreographer Dana Tysoon Burgess of Dana Tysoon Burgess Dance Company. Dana is an internationally known American choreographer, dancer, and cultural figure. Dana was named the Smithsonian's first ever choreographer in residence at the National Portrait Gallery and is also presently a cultural representative for the U.S. State Department. Dana, define dance for us. For me, dance is a universal movement language. It's movement which conveys the universality of the stories of humanity. I think that we all share the emotions surrounding love, loss, happiness, sadness. And when movement can convey that with clarity and artistry, then that for me is dance. As you go around the world, what strikes you as you watch your audiences absorb some of your performances? What I appreciate when I've heard from the audiences that see our work abroad and when I speak to them after the shows is that the work has a transformative aspect that allows for the individual to look at a performance and think about their own history and then apply that emotion to where they are within their life. I think that when an audience responds to something which is sublime and able to transcend their sort of everyday existence, right? But to think on a higher plane about what their calling is as an individual or as a community, then for me, that's success. When and where is your next uh, State Department tour? We will be in Jakarta and Jakarta in October. And we're very much looking forward to that um, tour because dance is such an important part of Indonesian culture and has been historically. And so I think that dialogue of being able to perform there, to be able to teach classes and to meet artists from Indonesia will be really fulfilling. For those new to dance or um, even perhaps intimidated in some way by the art form, why is dance 
particularly relevant in today's social and cultural climate. Why should we pay attention to dance? Dance, as are all the arts, a direct result of the sociopolitical context in which the arts are formed. And I especially feel that for dance because, you know, movement has this slightly like unfiltered component, right? It can get to the core of a concept. We're in the midst of a challenging sociopolitical climate within the United States. And anything that can allow people to be more empathetic to different perspectives and to understand also the fragility of relationships, then I think that's an important thing. And that's why dance, especially at this time, is needed. Stacey and I were lucky enough to attend one of your performances uh, this past May in honor of AAPI Heritage Month titled Tracings. Can you tell our listeners briefly about that performance and why it was significant to you? Sure. Tracings is a repertory piece which was originally commissioned by the Kennedy Center and the Korean American Centennial Commission to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Koreans coming to America um, back in 2003 is when it premiered because it celebrated that 100 years between 1903 and 2003. That work is very personal in a sense because it's based on my family's times on the Del Monte plantation. And they weren't always easy times, of course, because that's incredibly difficult work to work on a plantation. And also deals with them being new Americans, what that immigrant experience was, and not just for the first generation, but for multiple generations after that. Because they think that the immigrant experience extends past the first generation. Um, there's impact which continues on, and so that dance explores those things. And what I love about Tracings is that my mom, who's almost 90 now, she made a cameo in the work because it always starts out with this older Korean woman sitting on a chair, and then the story unfolds as if her memories are unfolding as the dancers arrive. Has anyone ever come up to you afterwards and said something particularly moving to you about their reaction to the piece? Yes, we were on tour in Peru in a city named um, Trujillo, and we were in this historic, just beautiful theater um, from which was built in the um, 1800s. And after the performance, this group of individuals came backstage, and this woman said, I just want to tell you, um, I understood the work. And I was just so pleased by that. And I'll explain what that means because we perform tracings, which is such a deeply personal Korean-American experience. And yet she was Japanese-Peruvian. And it turns out that the Japanese-Peruvians moved to Peru in around the same time period, early 1900s to be late 1800s, to be agricultural workers as well. She so profoundly understood the images and understood the feelings and sensations that were brought up from seeing the trials and tribulations danced out on stage of what my ancestor had gone through. And she really had a deep emotional response to that within her own history. I feel like it's examples like that where the medium of movement somehow transcends words. Well, I think it gets beyond the filter of words, right? 
there's something about our verbal and written language that, for me anyhow, can somehow hold my deepest inner emotions at bay, right? And that once you take that veil away, then there's a much more vulnerable, perhaps truthful reservoir which can be accessed. How do you creatively tap into powerful emotions that sometimes not all of us want to go to? I look for the universality of a theme within a story. When I'm asked to do a work at the National Portrait Gallery, I'll sort of study the different exhibitions. I'll be looking at different pieces of art. I speak to the curators, the historians, about the background, about the provenance. And I'm in search of a universal story that has a specific entry point, and that entry point might be an artist's life or it might be a famous work of art, but it leads to something more universal. And again, it's going back to that idea that we all love, we all experience loss, we all have anger, we all have to deal with getting over anger. We move through our lives with being born, having all these amazing experiences, and then move towards death and resolution. And so any way that I can formulate a narrative that taps into those things that we all experience, that we all globally experience as humanity, then that's how I approach getting to those core like ideas of empathy and sympathy and resolution. Dana, what do you do to look for sources of you know, new ideas? Do you dance? Or do you go watch dances? Or do you take a walk? Or what do you do? I'm always in search of visual inspiration. So when I'm at the National Portrait Gallery, I'm always looking at work, finding out what the next exhibition is. Again, having conversations with curators and art historians. That is always sort of feeding my consciousness. But when I get my most depthful inspiration Interestingly, it comes to me in dreams. I keep a dream journal by the side of my bed, and when a dance wants to unfold, then I start waking up every morning at like 3 in the morning, and I just have to write and I have to draw. This writing creates a roadmap, and that roadmap creates the dance. How interesting. In dreams. So it really literally just comes to you. Yeah, it's this place between being awake and being asleep, which seems to be my best creative moment in a sense. As if spearheading a preeminent modern dance company isn't enough to keep you busy and being a a cultural representative for the State Department, you also previously held a post as chair of the Department of Theater and Dance, as well as being a professor in the dance department at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., In these roles, if you could boil it down to maybe one sentence, what did you teach students? I think to not be afraid. You know, I I think that fear is the biggest hindrance to anyone being able to actualize. It doesn't matter whether you're in dance or you're going to be a politician or you're, you know, studying poli-sci or you're studying economics and you want to be a CPA. It really comes down to fear. And I think the sooner that the student or just anyone, any individual, gets beyond that and can tackle fear, then the sooner 
that the individual is able to self-actualize. When you were asked to be Smithsonian's first ever choreographer in residence, were you afraid? No, I, I was just elated because it brought together my childhood, how I grew up being surrounded by visual arts and visual artists, and my world in movement and dance. And it brought them together in this, in this just beautiful, amazing museum environment. So for me, it was really the confluence, so to speak, right, of <laughs> many different parts of my life. And I love exploring the fluency between visual arts and dance, like how those creative processes are similar and can run parallel and then can amplify one another. Is that what you do in that post? I do, yeah. Given your vast knowledge and wisdom about dance, what is the future of dance in your mind? We're in a fascinating time period in which generations are defined in shorter amounts of time by how one generation understands technology versus another generation, right? So we're kind of past this place where it's biological generations, but it's intellectual understanding generations. And a lot of people ask me like, oh, in the midst of this, you know, these virtual worlds, is dance going to exist? And what I think is that dance is having a renaissance. And the reason it's having a renaissance is that that kinesthetic experience, not the virtual experience, but the actual kinesthetic experience of going and seeing a performance and seeing the vulnerability of the human body for a moment in time which is not repeatable. You can videotape it, but it's not repeatable, right? Is really a prize. I mean, that's what people are going to want to more and more and more is to get back to this very human way of communicating through the body, which often many of the things that are going on technologically now are really wonderful, but moving away from our understanding of this mind-body relationship, of this core experience to be whole. Dana, what exciting projects will we have the privilege to look forward to? I'm very excited about a new suite of dances, which I'm just starting to create now, which is a tribute to Marian Anderson, the African-American opera singer who was banned by the DAR and Constitution Hall to perform there in 1939 and ended up doing a very galvanizing performance in 1939 on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial which brought together really so much of the nation's feeling and support around the civil rights movement. She was an amazing artist. This particular work will have a live opera singer and accompanist, as well as my choreography. And I love the opportunity to work with live music um, on this project. Well, we're really looking forward to that, and we'll be watching for it. Dana Tysoon Burgess, thank you for coming in today. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. This is wonderful. Dana Tysoon Burgess is a leading American choreographer, dancer, and cultural figure, and is also the founder and artistic director of the Dana Tysoon Burgess Dance Company, now in its 27th season. 
A special 50-minute salon event and performance is being held at the President Woodrow Wilson House on November 8th and 9th at 6 p.m. and 2 p.m. respectively. The event will explore the backstory and origins of how modern dance rose to prominence in the U.S. For tickets, please visit dtsbdc.org or woodrowwilsonhouse.org. We'll also make sure to embed the link in our show notes. Here's a special note to our listeners to make sure to check out our website at adecibel.com. That's A-D-E-C-I-B-E-L dot com. There, you'll find extended interview excerpts that you won't want to miss, behind-the-scenes photos, and some pretty hysterical outtakes. A Decibel Voices is hosted by me, Megan Rumler, and co-produced and edited by myself and Stacy Yu. All music is sourced royalty-free. So we're at the end of season one, and some of you are probably wondering who we are. Be sure to tune in next week to hear the story behind A Decibel Media and get to know a little bit about me and Stacy. Hey, it's Stacy here. Since we're a brand new podcast, we need your help. Send us your feedback. We want this podcast to be listener-centered and would love to hear from you. What do you like, not like, or wish you could hear more of? Is there an Asian-American trailblazer whom you want us to interview? Tell us what you think. Call or text us at 202-599-3318. Leave your full name, contact info, age, and where you're from. Messages are recorded, so who knows? Maybe you'll hear yourself on our show. Thanks for listening, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.